Welcome to the Kelly Cardenas podcast, uh, the 98.2, where attitude is everything, uh, 98% attitude, aptitude. And uh, today I am so, so excited. Uh, I forced this guy to be my friend. And um, <laughs> more than all his accomplishments, um, and that you'll hear about and me brag about all the time, um, just a really, really amazing guy. And um, so I, I lead with this, which people are going to freak out on, but Grammy award-winning, um, Switchfoot uh, founder, um, Mr. Tim Foreman. Welcome to the show, my brother. How you doing, Kelly? Good to see your face. <laughs> I'm doing amazing. It's funny because we're actually probably a block and a half from each other right now, um, but we're looking at each other through a screen, which is cool too. Um, but I wanted to get you on and the, the real big reason there, obviously I think the accolades are really cool. I think all that stuff is fun. Um, Grammy award winning, you've toured with some of the greats, um, you know, and we'll get into those things. But the thing that stuck out to me is, is that you're a real person. You're really, really cool. And you take time for everybody. And I want to help the people to understand, like, I've been a fan of Switchfoot for 20 years, over 20 years. Um, I saw you guys at the um, the Rock Church years ago as a, probably one of the most formidable times in my life. I had just left my family, um, and I was on my own for the first time, away from my mom for the first time. And so this was a big thing, and, and you guys' music really, really inspired me, and I followed you guys, all the stuff. And then fast forward 20 years, and I heard that you lived in the neighborhood, and I was freaked out. I was like, yeah, I've got to find this dude. Well, I'm walking my dog, and I look over, and I'm like, that's Tim. Like, that's Tim. And you didn't know who I was. And I approached you while I'm walking my dog. I think I had dog poop in my hand in the bag. And I was like, my name is Kelly. I told you my story quick. And I was like, I'm going to force you to be my friend. So you can either give it up now or um, you, can, you can delay this process. Um, but in that, it was so great because you took the time. You listened to me. Um, you know, and we become friends over the time. I think it's uh, been incredible. So um, take us into this part. Well, I want to jump right in because like when people hear touring around the world you've toured in stadiums of 70 100,000 even more uh, at times you've toured with Bon Jovi you've, I mean you've done all these crazy things um, take us back to little Timmy um, you know maybe starting to like music a little bit you ever think this stuff was going to happen well first of all I was going to jump back to my version of uh, when I met you for the first time in the neighborhood and uh, the way I remember it is it was like in the morning, my hair was crazy. And you're like, bro, I got to I got to hook you up. Let me, let me cut your hair. Let me do you a favor and get, get that under control. <laughs> <laughs> I love this because my wife and I have uh, very similar like with our story as far as how we met. Uh, my wife and I, um, we have completely two different versions of it which is great so i love you i love your version i love that um i always thought you were cool um but uh you know let's go let's go into little timmy because i think that most people out there with little timmy uh if i can call you that um you know grade school maybe you like music um what happens the first time you say you want to be a rock star because i could tell you i mean that's as a little kid says, I want to be a rock star. Most of the time people are like, uh -huh, what, what restaurant are you going to work at? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm quite positive. I never said I want to be a rock star. Really? Yeah, that was never the goal. Um, but when I think of little Timmy and I still 
I still kind of am little Timmy, if I'm honest. Um, I picture a kid sitting on my base amp where my feet don't even touch the floor. Very little kid. I was, uh, I was in fifth grade and me and my brother, who's two years older than me, we just discovered Led Zeppelin. So our, our voices hadn't changed yet, so we could still hit the high notes. And uh, we just played Led Zeppelin covers in, uh, in the garage. That was, uh, was kind of how, how it all started. So when you guys started playing, did you guys have musical background? Was it in you? Was it natural? Or was it something that you just kind of picked up on? Uh, take us to those points. I mean, you seem to have pretty understanding parents, too, that were like, oh, wow. You know, because we're going back years and years and years where today when a kid is playing an instrument, things like that, we're like, yes, it's so awesome. Uh, I, I mean. Yeah, was- we, we had amazing. We have amazing parents. We had amazing neighbors as well. I, uh, I, we had a lot of our uh, backyard concerts get shut down by the cops, but never at our own house. So our, our neighbors were, were very understanding of, of loud music. Um, yeah, I, music was always a part of growing up for me. My parents are musicians and there was always instruments lying around the house. So there was never a moment where, there's never a moment where we had to decide uh, do we want to play music? That was just kind of the background of what was always happening. Okay. So when you're, when you're doing it, do, is your dad musical? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So my buddy right now, his name is Chad Jordan. Can you say Chad Jordan? Like I love you or whatever. You could give him a little shout out. What's up, Chad Jordan? How you doing, okay. man? You broke up just a little bit, Tim. So do it again for me. Cause <laughs> this is big. Chad Jordan. What's going on? How are you? <laughs> Chad Jordan is dying right now. He's a musician up in, uh, he's from Lodi. And I met him, the guy, dude was phenomenal. We were at a church service and I was, uh, my mom passed away in June, uh, 2018, uh, June 19th. Well, I go up and her song, do you know the song, um, Reckless Love? Uh, I don't know that I know that one. Why why, why don't you sing it for me, Kelly? Uh, (laughs) what is, uh, there's there's three words in it but i mean the reckless love was her song okay and when when i was at the church service with them i was praying and my mom was there and i was i was just like i was spending time with my mom in the church service right but she had passed away and chad plays i was going to ask him can you play a song for me because he was going to do worship but i didn't get the chance to ask him and the first song that comes out is reckless love and he murdered it this dude is a phenomenal musician so he's freaking out right now um, absolutely freaking out. So, um, your parents, uh, your upbringing, we talked about this. Uh, I get a chance to be able to spend time with you, which I'm so honored. And, um, but the, the cool thing is I'm honored to do that, but dude, I just love that we, we hang and we just shoot to poop, you know, and that's what mom says. Can't say the other word. Um, but you had told me about like, you know, you grew up, your, your pops was a pastor. Yeah. Yeah. Still okay. is. Uh, for those of you just tur- tuning in, this is Tim Foreman, uh, Grammy Award winning, Switchfoot, uh, the man, the myth, but also just a phenomenal dude, great father, great husband, and it's incredible. And his wife keeps him in line. I see her. She keeps him in line. I promise you. He lives in my neighborhood. Um, your pop pastor, you guys get into music. Um, I remember you telling me about a, a like you guys had to kind of almost make a decision because you didn't want to. Uh, let's, let's go into that part. 
Well, what's interesting about uh, me and my brother being pastor's kids is, first of all, that we're not in jail, because I think that's, um, that's the most common outcome of that <laughs> upbringing. You know, we, uh, we discovered surfing and music, and that kept us out of trouble. Um, but what's really interesting, I think, with our story is when we discovered Led Zeppelin, which isn't really um, a you know, traditional pastor's kid song uh, album to be to be playing, you know, when you're in elementary school, is um, my dad sat down and taught us how to play Stairway to Heaven, rather than um, making us feel ostracized for choosing music that was um, outside of what would be considered the safe confines of the church. He, he embraced where we were. And uh, I think music, consequently music has always been a safe place to explore new ideas for us. So when you guys, when you guys got into it, right. I mean, you go uh, help us with being a pastor's kid. You said, you said, I, I laughed at because like the, the pastor's kids were generally always the kids you want to hang out with uh, because you were, you know, uh, like they were getting wilding out, they were doing their thing. How did you guys stay on that right path? Especially because, I mean, that is most of the time a recipe for disaster. Yeah, I think our parents just always made us feel accepted. You know, um, they, we were just uh, surf rats playing rock and roll and they loved us in that. And we still, <laughs> we're still surf rats playing rock and roll, but they, um, you know, we never felt judged. Um, I'm sure we felt some judgment, you know, from people outside of our family, but I feel like if your core is solid, um, you know, we, we felt like we had a place that we belonged and that we could grow up and, and just discover new things about ourselves. And, and so uh, I think music and surfing are both places that should be um, wide open, right? There's a, there's no wrong way to enjoy the ocean, to enjoy a wave. And there's no wrong way to play music or to enjoy music, you know? And, and I think uh, that was really evident early on from how our parents raised us around the Beatles and the police and you two, and just, you know, we grew up around great music and it's always been in us. So you and your brother, how many years are you guys apart? Two years. Two years apart. Okay. So you guys are boys. Like you guys are best friends. Me and my brother are best friends. That's how you guys are, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we got we got all of our fist fights out when we were kids. Okay. Who, who won? You guys go back. Uh, I mean he yeah, he won every time. But um my brother used know, to he, he had like probably like this much reach on me, you know. So it would used to drive me crazy when he pinned me down and I'd be swinging my fist and I couldn't land a single punch. I, I completely feel you. My brother, my brother would whoop me. And then I got to a point, I was like, look, maybe uh, we can join forces and conquer the world together. And now, now we're best friends. So you and your brother playing, uh, you guys are in, um, in the garage. You discover Lev Zepp. You start playing guitar. You start doing the stuff. You start playing bass. You start doing these things. Take us through your first gig. Like, were you nervous? So the first gig that I remember was a pool party. It was our backyard neighbor's house. And I remember feeling pretty cool. I was like sixth grade, uh, my brother's in eighth grade. And we set up our instruments and we're playing some Led Zeppelin songs. I think uh, we were playing um, Moby Dick. And these two, two or three older kids 
show up and we're feeling cool because they're watching us and and then we finish the song and they're like hey can we can we try and they jump on our instruments and just blew us away and then everyone at the pool party is like we want more of them <laughs> and we that was it that was the end of the gig we were uh we were in the shallow end of the pool watching the uh the cooler older kids play our instruments <laughs> now was this was this here in north county no this was on the east coast we were living in virginia beach at the time okay so you guys get showed up at your own gig someone takes your instruments you a straight debo rolled up in your place and took your bike uh, and then you with his okay so help us with that like uh you know were, were you did you guys already have a name at this time you ready for this one joker's wild that was your name <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> why help, help me with this you know i was gonna ask but why joker's wild i i honestly have no idea other than someone threw it out as when we were brainstorming and we were like oh that sounds cool i don't even think we knew that it was like a poker term or something we were just like yeah i don't know what that means but that's awesome and, that's and it was it was unanimous too it was like no there's no deliberation it was like done just you two so you two are playing like it's it's you and uh you and john you guys are jokers wild yeah um and you're playing are you playing the bass at this time or are you what are you doing yeah playing the bass you're playing sitting, the bass. On, sitting on my bass amp with my feet just dangling off the ground yes and jokers wilds in the house jokers wild Joker's wild. Do you have like a, uh, like, did you guys draw a logo? That's a good question. I'm, we probably did. I guarantee you we did. Okay. Can you do me a favor? Can you shout out to my dad? My dad, my, I call him Pops. So Pops is on the line and my big brother Rob, and big brother Rob and Pops, this is Tim from Switchfoot. I brag about him all the time. Um, but can you give him a little shout out? Big brother Rob. Pops, what's up? Yeah. <laughs> Big pop, big pop. Okay, so Joker's Wild. Um, you, you guys, get, you get your instruments taken. Uh, tell us about, um, you know, what happens next. Uh, do you guys sign again? Do you guys open for those guys? So we, um, we moved shortly after that gig to the West Coast, okay. California. Did you? So that was our, that was our big East Coast moment. That was the, the high point of our East Coast career. <laughs> it was a I was like our going away party you know going away to the to the west coast and then we we get to the west coast and um I think we were pretty motivated though at that point we were like okay we know what a good band sounds like now and uh we went to work and our next gig was under the name etc when I was in ninth grade so a few years later and it was for my junior high my junior high had a, an annual dance, right? Oakcrest Junior High, just down the road. And the dances at that time were super uncool. So they always got canceled. No one ever showed up and they had to cancel it because of poor attendance. And so I went to the principal. I was such a hustler at the time. I went to the principal and I said, if you hire my band to play it, I promise you that it won't be canceled and people will show up. And I didn't know how I was going to do it, but that was like, phase one and but I, I said he had to pay us 500 bucks which at the time felt like a fortune you got 500 dollars in ninth grade to do a concert yep 
and it, because I found out that he had been play, paying a DJ a thousand bucks every time they tried to have a dance. And the DJ got paid whether the dance got canceled or not. And I said, look, if the dance happens, you pay me 500 bucks. And if it doesn't, you don't pay me anything. Where, where did you get your negotiating skills? Like, <laughs> I know, for, 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 but you just, I mean, you, you're a business dude. Like, where did that, where did, where did that come from? That's, that's just from being a little brother, right? Okay, yeah. I mean, I feel like you probably relate to that. Do you want to know my story about my big brother teaching me about commerce? Yes. Okay, so we, we used to sell now and laters, right? Not we, he did. He used to buy them for 10 cents, sell them for 25. But I got to school and I was like, yo, Rob, big Rob, my brother, my man, you know, family. Here we go, we're in. Hey, dude, can I get some now and laters? He's like 25 cents. I was like, what? 20, they sold them to me, 25 cents. So I bought it. I ate two of them. And then a kid asked me for an hour later. I was like, I'll sell them to you for 25 cents. So I didn't realize commerce at the time, but I thought I made money. So <laughs> I ate two, sold the now later for 25 cents, went back to my brother and bought another one and then ate two and then sold it for 25 cents. And I was like, yeah, I'm rich. And then I was like, no, I have the same amount of money. So we used to get it at the, uh, in Lompoc, California. We used to buy now and laters after the bus stop and you used to buy them for 10 cents and then sell them for 25. Well, my brother was faster than me. So when we get off the bus, he would run as fast as he could beat me to the a little corner market in Lompoc, represent Lompoc. And he would buy all the apple, the grape, the watermelon. And the only thing that would be left was like chocolate and banana. Uh-huh. <laughs> but as opposed to waiting and buying what people like, I just bought anything and everything, and then I just had all my stock. And guess what happened when I got caught, though? My mm-hmm. principal was like, yeah, you know, they caught us, and we were supposed to be selling. And he's like, how did you learn how to do this? I was like, oh, my brother taught me. So my brother got in trouble, too, and we both got <laughs> You want to smack me for that. That's uh, classic. Dealing okay. candy. So let's go. We're, mm-hmm. we're et cetera, right? Is it yeah. ETC, period? Because I don't even know how to spell yeah. it. Yeah, it's ETC period. Why? Why is that? Where'd that come from? You know, why, why are any band names created? Just because they sound cool, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, but the, the real pressing question is, is why did, why did you abandon Joker's Wild, dude? I mean, Joker's <laughs> Wild was gangster. Like, you know, you could have been up in Vegas. If, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think by that point we had seen Bill and Ted's and uh, Wild St- Stallions and we were like, I don't know if that's the band we want to be. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you go into etc. Who are you listen to at this time? You start off with Lev Zeppelin. You're in ninth grade now. Who's your influences? Who are you listening to? And who is your like, yes, this is it. Ninth grade was Jimi Hendrix, but and then the rest was punk rock. So okay. we're talking like Bad Religion, Pennywise, like a lot of California punk. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it just, and then random things. Like I remember the spin doctors were in there somehow. <laughs> when you're in ninth grade, like the way you approach music is, you know, you kind of have, you don't have those boundaries of this is what I listen to. Okay. Um, so so- we, we launched this campaign where we put up flyers all over my junior high. And they were just random photos from uh, National Geographic, like, you know, alligators in a pond or like, you know, just animals. And then it just said, et cetera, is coming. 
and then it said at the bottom, all your friends are going, they're just not telling you. <laughs> now, did you come up with that or did John? I think John was kind of the genius behind that campaign. That is gangster. That, I mean, that dude, you were, you were on the forefront, man. You should be in marketing too. Okay, so we're in, we're in ninth grade, 10th grade. We got et cetera coming. We got alligators. We got bears. Oh my. Uh, you're doing uh, uh, dances. Now, when you did the dance, you got the $500. Were there people dancing or were you guys like a sexual child? Were you Randy Watson at the, uh, at the place? You know, that, you know who Randy Watson is, right? Yeah, yeah. No, no, it was, it, was, um, it was kind of like out of control. It was like packed out. And um, it's a bunch of kids who have never been to a concert or a dance before, you know? So they're like kind of going wild, but in a very, um, like they just don't know how to behave, you know? How, how they're supposed to dance or act at a concert is it's everything you wanted a junior high dance to be right so that is, so you're in high school but you're playing at the junior high dance yeah and it wasn't until no i was i was in junior high i was in ninth grade it was, was my a, last year yeah say because you don't want to be that dude <laughs> you don't want to be that dude you know what i mean like you don't want to be that guy that's like yo i got a trans amp and a cut off uh vest and hanging out at the high school talking about like, oh. No, this was, this was my big, like, king of the school moment, you know? Okay, so you were in eighth grade. I was in ninth. So back then, Oakcrest was uh, seventh through ninth. So I was in ninth grade. Thank you for, thank you. Because we didn't want to go to the other side. Because we were thinking, man, Tim is a little weird. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Tim's going back, you know what I mean? Hanging out at the, uh, or the uh, elementary school. So. No, that was, that was my school. And so it wasn't until we got up on stage that I realized we probably only knew like, I don't know, six or seven songs max. And we had to fill like an hour and a half or two hours of music. How'd you and feel? So we just started like, you know, doing some like probably horrible uh, white funky covers, <laughs> you know, just, just like um, just endless jams of like really bad uh, funk. And, uh, and then we started repeating songs too. Like you kind of got a feel for which songs went over well earlier, just play them again. <laughs> okay, so how, uh, this, is this the, your first taste of like, okay, now I feel that crowd. And is that the first time? Yeah, yeah, okay. probably. So when you feel it, like what is that? I mean, did, was it like that, um, uh, you know, for me, I've never done drugs before. I've never drank before. And people are like, oh, yeah, you know, you know what it means when you get high. I was like, nah, I don't. I've never been high before. I'm, I'm not judging it. Um, but I don't know that. But I do know what high is like this. Like me doing this. I'm doing what I'm purposed to do, which I feel that this is what I'm purposed to do. Um, I'm high. Like, and so was that the feeling? Yeah, yeah. And it... it it's not the feeling of being on stage in front of people. That to me is not um, what my personality is drawn to. I'm much more of a kind of mellow guy, but the feeling of being a part of a communal experience that music can be and should be um, is a powerful one. And that's what I'm drawn to, you know? So the idea of a bunch of people in one place, it's hard to imagine right now that we're all so isolated, but um, it's such a special thing to have a bunch of people in one place singing the same song. And that was the first time that I'd felt that. 
So uh, take us, okay, so ninth grade happens, you got et cetera, you guys are rolling. Now uh, you're getting calls from all over, um, you know, shows are being booked, you're wanting to be on MTV. I'm joking. Um, where does et cetera go from that point? So as, as you probably are getting the feeling from by now, my brother and I were, were hustling, right? We, we, uh, we had no shortage of uh, sweat equity towards Thing. So I actually just found a, um, a neighborhood like uh, pamphlet, I guess my, the neighborhood I grew up with, they had a, um, like a directory. This was in Cardiff and there was a list of jobs that you could hire people for within the neighborhood. And I found my brother and, and my name on just about every job that was listed in the pamphlet. It was like yard work. Yeah, we got that. Recycling. We got you. Um, dog walking. Yep. Uh, house like we just we signed up for everything and that's kind of the same approach we had with with the band like we'd play anywhere you know we played bars we played churches we played coffee shops we played colleges we played frat parties um you know any chance to uh to play music we were in what was the weirdest place that you played Man, we played some real weird ones. I mean, I, I think the weird thing about being in high school and playing a bar was that you get kicked out immediately after you play, right? So they kind of like would escort you in the back. You go right directly on the stage and then directly out back into the alley. So you're, you know, in 10th grade and you're hanging out in this shady alley and you're like, I think we just played music in there, but now we're out here and the next band's on and, um, and that was just kind of like a very normal experience for us. So in 10th, in 10th grade, you were playing in a, uh, <laughs> you were playing in, in Okay. So et cetera, starts playing in bars. You guys are doing everything. You're mowing lawns, you're walking dogs, you're picking up poop, you're doing whatever. You got that hustle mentality, which I love because most people see switch foot. Like, honestly, there's people that are hitting my feed right now. They're like, Oh my God, that's my favorite band. It's always been my favorite band. It's so crazy. And honestly, you guys are one of my favorite bands of all time. And, and we see that part. But what you're saying is, is like, I mean, I've been walking dogs. I've been mowing lawns. I've been doing whatever. Um, so you're playing the stuff. Okay, when, when does, does et cetera go right into Switchfoot? Or is there another name? Yeah, so, I mean, we were just a three-piece. Uh, my brother and I and our drummer at the time, Jason. And uh, when he left we had just kind of met Chad, uh, our drummer now, Chad Butler, and he was, uh, he's a little older than, than John. So two years older than John, four years older than me. So he's like the real kind of top dog at Carlsbad High. He's a senior. Um, when John met him, they were both playing water polo and Chad was like the team captain. Um, and he was in a really great band. We used to open for them. And when that band broke up, we were like, Chad, you got to come jam. And I, I, the way I remember it is he was like a little like, okay, but a little unsure, you know, and um, we kind of had to convince him. So when you're, when you're doing that, when you're going through, like you said, Carlsbad high, like uh, you guys are the hustlers, you guys are, I mean, honestly, and there's a huge amount of difference for those of you guys. Listening, there's a huge amount of difference between being in a band and being in the band. Um, this was a distinction that was huge, or at least in my school, 
If you're in a band, you're like, wow, you're like a rebel. If you're in the band, um, you know, you probably weren't getting as much love and attention as you should. Um, I think that you should because of the discipline that you have and things like that. Um, but also too, you're growing up in an era like during this time of some pretty crazy personalities. Am I correct? In this North County area. And okay. Some super influential people. Like I was watching a a video the other night uh, and he shouted out your brother and he was talking about you guys. And he's like, I'm doing this challenge of, I can't remember like giving food or whatever it is. You know who I'm talking about? Are you talking about Rob? Yeah. Okay. Tell, Tell these people, some of the people that you kind of grew up around that weren't like to us, when we hear these names, we're going to freak out. They're, they're all going to freak out, but they were just the dudes that were around. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you're talking about Rob Machado. He actually was my brother's soccer coach when he was, uh, in high school. And of course we knew him as our favorite surfer already at that time. He was our favorite surfer, you know, um, but he hadn't quite uh, reached the international uh, claim that he has now, of course. And, uh, and it, I, I just remember being so influenced by the fact that here he is, our biggest surfing hero, and he's also finding the time between traveling the world to coach my brother's soccer team, the, the San Diego team, which was the school that he went to and he had just graduated from. And talk about giving back to your community and remembering where you came from. Um, that, that actually made a, a huge impression on, on both of us. Now, did that, I mean, because you, you are a guy who, honestly, like, you're just around. Like, you're around the neighborhood. You're at the pool. You're, you know, you're just hanging out. I mean, you're super chill. Um, you know, but, you, again, you hang out with some, of, I mean, in your circle, you have some of the people that, like, you have some of the people that were the forefront of skateboarding. You know that that were around in those uh, those those times, but they're just normal guys to you. How, what kind of influence did that have? And you guys growing up in this, like, I mean, not only music rich but crazy talent rich uh, environment. How did that have an effect on you? Yeah, I, I think the North County vibe in those days, and I think it's maintained some of this um, through the years for sure. But um, whether it was music or surfing or skating. Uh, it had a very kind of low key, um, no one special type of ethic to it. And uh, I remember, you know, we had hero bands that we looked up to. Boilermaker was one of them in, in Lucadia, just down the road. And one of the things I was struck by was the fact that after the show, they're loading their own gear out. They're, you know, no one's no one's special. The stage was not some sort of delineation between cool and uncool and um that's kind of a punk rock ethic you know and we toured with a lot of punk rock bands back in those days and and i think that's really important to us is um more than just remembering where you came from but that you you never left you know you're still the the same person and to to stay grounded to the community that you belong in is, is a really powerful way of of belonging you know I think it's really easy to lose yourself on this journey of life and I mean looking at what we're all going through right now right talk about kind of being forced to to remember the simple things and to focus on the beauty that that surrounds us that we used to take for granted even three weeks ago wow well and and also too like you know you talk about um some of the 
you know, musical uh, people that have come out of here in North County, the skating. I mean, we're, we're talking about some of the greatest, I mean, this is where really the Mecca of skateboarding, correct? Yeah. Um, in fact, it, it used to make me so happy and proud to see um, like in Tony Hawk pro skater back in the day that so many of the scenes were right out of uh, my high school. <laughs> oh no, San Diego at the time. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. And it was always on, like, you know, whatever skate videos we were watching. We'd be like, oh, there's that 13 stair. You know, there's that rail. That's nuts. Well, it's, it's funny that, that you say it. I don't know if I've even told you this, but when I came to North County, I, I, there was two focuses. Number one uh, was that I, I wanted to, uh, my wife wanted to raise the kids by the water, and that was, like, the full focus, and I wanted to make sure and focus on my family. Second thing was is to cut Tony's hawk, Hawk's hair someday. Um, that was the, the second one uh, when I came, when I came through and it's, it's funny because the, the only reason why I wanted to, not because of his fame or anything like that, but because he's the only reason why I ever intentionally skipped work. I found, I got the cheat code to Tony Hawk pro skater. <laughs> My friend called me, no lie Tim, in the middle of the day and said, yo, I got the cheat code. I literally canceled clients. This sucks. I've never said this. <laughs> I canceled clients that day and left the salon and went home and played Tony Hawk all day and didn't do my clients, didn't do my work and didn't do my responsibility. Sorry, pop, uh, just to play pro skater. Um, so, uh, you're, you're in that realm. You're doing, uh, you got et cetera. Um, you know, let's get back. Or, or do we go et cetera to switch foot? Is that where it goes? Yeah. So when does switch foot happen and what does switch foot mean? Why does it, why is the transition? Yeah, so that was my senior year when we um, we came up with that name, and so this is '97, and uh, we through yeah we we made this terrible sounding demo tape. It was a cassette, right? And um, we recorded it on a four track, and we somehow that cassette ended up getting passed to a friend of a friend who worked for an indie label in Nashville, and. Next thing we know, we got a phone call, guys flying out to uh, check us out. And we ended up getting signed and putting out our first record. This is, you know, it's to a small indie label. Um, but that was during my senior year. I was flying out and we were finishing the record. And the record came out four days after I graduated high school. And we, um, we hit the road right after that. Okay, so you, you said it just like you my buddy the other day, Tom Bacic, he's a huge fan of yours. He's a skater from Temecula. Um, now he's like a, uh, just, we would all hang out together, but he used to spray paint, um, jet skis and, and, uh, motocross, uh, like motorcycles. And then someone said, why don't you just do that on nails? He started doing that. And now he's doing all the celebrities and all the A-list celebrities and stuff like that. Um, and the reason why I say that is because the other day I was talking to him and he's like, yeah, you know, we were, ha I was having milk and cookies with JLo and, um, and she got up and made me a peanut butter sandwich. And then, uh, he went on with this story. I was like, wait, wait, wait. So <laughs> you, Tim, because you just said I recorded a cassette on a four track. I sent it off and went to Nashville. I got signed, but it was a small label and then bang. I'm, you know, <laughs> like, okay. How long from the time that you recorded it until the time the guy got it in his hand in Nashville? Um, probably, you know, a couple months. It was, um, it, again, it was a really bad sounding cassette demo. It was mostly really loud cymbals. 
Um, but the guy, Charlie Peacock, is, is a real song guy, and he heard uh, songs on there that he was able to hear past how bad they sounded to, to the songs themselves and uh, felt like it was worth giving us another listen. And he, so he flew out. We, um, we actually spent a day in the studio with him, and he wanted, his goal was to record better demos to see if uh, there was something there. And the funny thing about those demos that we recorded that day is he checked them in his suitcase. He got on the plane to fly back to Nashville and the airline lost his luggage, never to be found again. No way. And I'm 100% convinced that that's why we got signed. Because if he, <laughs> I guarantee you those demos didn't sound any better, maybe marginally better than the first one. Um, but the memory of his time with us, I think, was probably better than, uh, than those demos would have ever sounded. So you take that, you take that, um, that, that work ethic into um, all the rest. So you get assigned, uh, you said, what, a week after? Like a week after uh, high school, you go on the road. You're, you're on the road, you're touring. Are yep. you with people? Are you headlining? What are you doing? We're still just scrapping it out. So um, our first tour right after high school was a European tour, but I, I would call it a European tour because we had like a few actual gigs, those like 10 a.m. slots on some um, smaller festivals uh, that we got as a favor, you know. Um, and then we played at like a few indie record stores and we were just driving ourselves around, you know, on the wrong side, three of us just scared to death every time we come around a corner, uh, driving on the left-hand side. And we lost our hubcap probably like five or six times from like grinding against the curbs on those narrow streets. But here's the, the best thing that we did on that trip was we, uh, we had like a few hundred dollars left that we had saved up. We weren't making any money on this tour. It was like a money, money losing endeavor just for the adventure of it. Um, and so we had a couple hundred bucks left and we wanted to get to France to go surfing. And so we checked out of our hotel early in London and slept during the day in Hyde Park. We, we had all our gear uh, tied to our arms and legs so no one would steal it. We were just sleeping during the day so that we could stay up all night so that we could save money and put that money towards getting a train to France to go surfing. And uh, we got to France. Uh, we, um, that night in London was one of the scariest nights I've ever experienced, by the way. We saw like muggings and like fist fights and it was just wild. Um, we got to France, waves were firing. We stayed in hostels for two or three nights till we ran out of money and then we, then we headed home. So you guys are, you guys are scrapping, you guys are on the road, you're scrapping, you're doing your thing. Um, uh, are you, how are you funding this thing? Because you said, that, I mean, most people think, oh, wow, I got signed. I'm touring in Europe. Like I'm balling. Um, what's the misconception of say like music, whether it be music or entertainment that way and the reality, because what I'm hearing from you is, is there's a ton of, of like, I'm just hanging with my brother we're scrapping it out. <laughs> we're, we're, did you guys, you guys slept outside so you wouldn't have to get a hotel so you could go surfing? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, we learned really quick that uh, we would play music for free, right? That's what we love to do. Um, but we had to, we had to get paid to feed ourselves. And we, we, the way we made peace with it was 
well, the music's free, but I get paid to sit on airplanes and, um, you know, travel around the world and leave my family. At the time, I didn't have family, but, you know, the idea is that there, there is work involved, but the music isn't the work. But we need to figure out how to fund the work that is involved, you know. And so for a young band, that's, that's merchandise, that's T-shirts. And so we, we were really scrappy with those, too. We'd go to Walmart and get, like, a 12-pack of, um, you know, just white T-shirts, and we'd stencil on them. And, you yeah. know, it, and, and people, you know, back in those days, people loved that way more than, like, a professional uh, screen-printed shirt because it was so much more punk rock, you know. And then we started stenciling them with spray paint, and everyone was different. And so that, that was, like that became our thing was, you know, when we were on tour during the day, we'd be out back making uh, patches and t-shirts and then we'd sell them that night and then we'd make more the next day. (laughs) (laughs) Who would sell them? Would you guys be out like, you know, after the show, you guys would be, yo, here's a t-shirt. Let me take it from you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'd be out at the, the, the merch stand after the show every night, right? Like hanging out, meeting people. That was like, that's that's still one of the best things about um, touring and playing shows is the uh, the personal connection, the you know interaction with people after the show, and to find out how your music is is going out and having a life of its of its own, you know. So, um, so yeah, we'd be hanging out, selling our own shirts afterwards, and making new friends. Well, you guys, you guys are just having fun. I mean, you guys are having fun. Uh, are you videoing any of this during the time? little bit but i mean so the chat like the big ones they weren't your phone so you're like on your shoulder so was there any video or any footage of this stuff from from early days not from like the first few days but i mean the first few years but chad got married like maybe three years into being a band and he got a video camera from his parents as like a wedding gift and that was like their big wedding gift and so that became the band video camera was it big? Was it one of the big, huge ones that you hold like this and it's got the big thing on the back? I mean, at the time, we felt like it was small. We couldn't believe how small it was. But yeah, it was pretty big. <laughs> <laughs> so you, guys, you guys are touring. You guys are hustling. You're surfing. You're doing whatever. You're taking into the time. Uh, you're selling shirts. Um, you're spray painting and stenciling. Freaking love you, dude. Hey, I've got an idea. I'm not going to say it on this, but I've got an idea and I want it. We'll, we'll talk after this. Okay. Um, so what, when does it start to click? Cause you're a super humble guy. When does it start to click? Like this stuff is working because there's a lot of people out there, whether it be a band, a business, um, whatever they're doing, they started off and they're like, yeah, I'm having fun. And then the rubber hits the road and they're like, I either got to make a living or, um, you know, maybe I'm not that good because not everybody makes it. When did, when did it start to click like, okay, this thing is working and we're not just having fun. You know, we are having fun, but this stuff is starting to work. Yeah, it was probably uh, early 2000s. Um, we had put out three albums at that point. We toured quite a bit, um, almost all just opening shows, right? Opening for other bands, a lot of them punk rock or it was the 90s, so ska bands, right? That was a thing. Um, and we kind of reached a point, the three of us, where we were like, you know, it's been a good run. We had some amazing adventures. Um, I'm not sure that this is something that's sustainable for the next, you know, five years, 10 years, you know, having those real conversations. 
Um, that was right before we recorded the beautiful letdown, which was our fourth record. And, um, we had had some, some exciting things happen the previous year. There was a movie that Mandy Moore had been working on, um, uh, that she, she sang one of our songs and then a few of our other songs were included in the movie. And we didn't know if that was going to be a, launching point for our career or if that was going to be just kind of a blip um, but we figured let's go back into the studio let's put everything that we have into the music of this record and then we can walk away with our our heads held high um, you know appreciating the journey that we've we've had we didn't have a, a record label at that point we had we were just an independent band we had just parted ways with our record label that we'd been on for the previous three albums and um so we had 17 days, very small budget. We went into the studio and recorded the beautiful letdown in 17 days with mixing, which is unbelievably fast. I couldn't believe how fast we, we did it, um, but we just didn't have the money for it. And uh, we released it. Um, oh, okay, so <laughs> back in it, before we released it, Columbia Records got a hold of the, uh, the album and was pretty excited about it. A few other labels heard about it. We started doing showcases for these major labels and there became this kind of like bidding war of, of hype over this record that we had created called The Beautiful Letdown. And we ended up signing with Columbia and that felt like, okay, all right, this is, uh, this is big time, you know? And we, we flew to New York City to um, get like wined and dined by the head of Sony, which was... Um, who owned Columbia records. And uh, I just remember it being the, the most glamorous high point you could imagine, like in a movie of being in a rock band. We, we got taken to this restaurant that was like the secret restaurant where the floor was actually real grass. It was just kind of like this absurd New York experience, right? Where you're like, wow, we've really made it. And um, it was our first time being in New York City. We toured for years and we'd never actually played New York City. And so our big showcase was supposed to be the next day where like all the, the big wigs from Columbia Records were gonna be there to see the, the new band they'd signed. And we played our show and we felt good about it. And we got off stage and I just remember walking up to our manager and his face was just like, white and we were like wasn't that great and he's like boys you just got dropped and we we're like what <laughs> and he said that the head of our, our record label was in the room and while we were playing a song called dare you to move he turns to our manager and he goes why do we keep signing this crap um, I don't hear any hits and he walked out of the room and dropped us. Oh my, you said dare you to move. I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so it was like a real, uh, turning point for us. Right. Because I think for so long we've been scrapping it out and we, it was a moment of, um, you know, it's easy to get caught up in the hype of when you, when you, when things are going good, you start to forget why you do what you do and um, 
what the drivers are behind it, you know, and I think it's easy to get excited about someone else's opinion of your art to where it doesn't even matter what you think of it. And it was a real moment of, well, what do we think of this? You know, we know what the head of our label thought of it. Um, what do we think of it? Do we still believe in these songs? Uh, and, you know, we kind of took a couple weeks to really process it and, um, it kind of relit the fire in us that, you know, we had to release this music, that this music felt too important to us, that it was never about um, getting a, la a major label deal. It was never about success. It was always about bringing hope to people who needed it. And so we put it out on an indie label and the first week sold 30,000 copies, which just blew us away. We couldn't believe it. And then within six months, it had sold a million copies. Oh, and what year was this? This was 1997, eight, nine? No, this was like 2001, 2002, somewhere in there, 2003, maybe. Um, yeah. And, uh, and the song that, that he walked out on, Dare to Move, is, you know, still to this day, probably our, our biggest song we've ever released. Oh. So. Okay, you so know, I, I take that to say, no matter what you're doing, um, don't let someone else's opinion be the, uh, the, the, the mark that you're, you're judging what you're, the path that you're on shouldn't be held to what someone's opinion is of it. You have to... The big, the only barometer you can use is how it moves you, how it makes you feel. And, and we've really carried that with us to this day that you can't create from a third person perspective. Of, I wonder if this person will like it. I wonder if this will speak to that person because you'll be wrong more, more often than you're right. The only thing that you know for sure is does it resonate with you? And, and, and the moment you start asking, does it resonate with someone else? It's easy to lose perspective of if it resonates with you. You can lose, you know, your true compass of what you think. And um, if it resonates with you, chances are it's going to resonate with someone else, you know. But you have to trust yourself. Wow. Okay, so that, you sell 30,000 copies in how long? Was it six weeks, you said? No, the first week sold 30,000 copies, yeah. When you got that call, you're a chill guy. I know you. I get to hang with you. You come into the salon, super chill. Hey, I just got out the water. You know what I mean? I, I shampoo your hair. You're like, I don't really want my hair shampoo because I like the ocean in it. I'm chill. If you could come to the salon barefoot, I know you would. Um, I'm barefoot right now. That's my boy right there. So you get the call, 30000 that's also, sorry, that's, I know that's disrespectful in certain countries to show the bottom of your foot. That was not my intention. <laughs> I am not um, But help me, did you lose your mind when you heard 30,000 copies? Were you like, you know, we all have that point, that, that point that we're like, like, you know, like Dave Chappelle would say, like, I'm rich, man. You know, like, not that point of the money part of it, but did you lose your mind thinking, holy little Timmy just sold 30,000 copies of a record that somebody said, there ain't no hits on this. Yeah, you know, it was one of those things where um, 
you know, numbers are such a weird thing. And I mean, first of all, I thought it was a mistake. I thought there was no possible way that we had sold 30,000 copies in a week, you know. Um, that wasn't a number that was even in the realm of what we'd been doing. And, uh, and, and, and even if, you know, a week later when I realized it wasn't a mistake, it's still, it's something that's hard to quantify. So I still wouldn't say, you know, I, I think that felt good, but I wouldn't say that that was the moment that I felt like, okay, I think, I think that we could really do this for a long time. You know, I think that moment didn't come until maybe a few weeks later when we started headlining our own shows and um, we're talking, we're talking dives like 200, 300 max uh, dive bars, you know, small places. And the first one of those that I really remember was a place called the Pontiac Grill. Where's it's, the it's in Philadelphia and Philadelphia was always really good to us. It was, it's a good music town. It's a gritty city. Um, you know, they really, they, they, they appreciate up and coming bands. And um, I remember we sold it out at 200 people and the stage was so small, we could barely all fit on it. You know, it was a tiny place, but the fact that it was sold out and we were the only band playing that night, I, I, it just blew my mind. You know, I, I felt like, wow, we're on the complete opposite side of the country and there's 200 people paying $10 to come see our band, you know, that, that, that blew, blew me away. <laughs> I love this because, you know, when you know, doing the things that you're doing, you're like 200 people, $10 a piece. We made it like, you know, and that, that's, that's incredible. So from that point, I mean, obviously it starts to snowball, right? Does it happen pretty quick at that point? Um, does it start to, does it start to roll? Yeah, it does. I mean, it, in my head, um, it was, it was an exciting time. You know, it was, it was a busy time. We were on the road a ton, um, but the shows were, were starting to, to all be packed out and it was getting to the point where you'd come back to a, the same town six months later and you'd be playing a bigger room and then that one would be sold out. I remember we played, uh, Minneapolis three times in six months. That's another great music town. And we just kept going back there. And each time we played a bigger room and, um, you know, to, to see that kind of momentum building, um, it was, was a lot more tangible than record sales, you know, because you're looking people in the eye and you're talking with them after the show and you're having conversations about the way these songs are impacting them. And, um, it felt like these little songs that were birthed at 2 a.m., you know, in a bedroom trying to figure out life and, and why we're here on this planet. We're going out and um, having lives of their own, you know, and, and changing and impacting other people's lives. And it, it was a realization that we're part of a much, much bigger story than, than a few surfers from San Diego. So would there, would there you to move? Like, what was the inspiration with the lyrics and stuff like that? Like, what did it, because, you know, you always hear these, these times, like, you know, oh, um, I don't know, you hear lyrics to a song and, and, and mean something to you. You and I had this discussion when I was here one time. I was like, does it make you mad when you guys write a song? And, it, and you guys were talking about, like, all oh, this time when I went to go get a Coke at uh, 7-Eleven, it really inspired me. And no one gets that point. And you were like, no, it just resonates to different people in different areas. What was the inspiration with Dare You to Move? Like, 
hysterical part. What, what were you guys talking about? Well, I remember when John played it for me the first time. Um, and he, he said that he was picturing a boxer who'd been knocked down in the ring. Everyone's on the outside of the ring shouting, you know, he's just been knocked down. The guy that knocked him down is standing over him. The ref's counting him down, right? And it's that question, do you get back up? And I think that the question isn't, are you going to get knocked down in life, right? That's not even a question. The answer is yes. Every single one of us, we all get knocked down. Sometimes it feels like it's the final knockout punch, right? Um, and the question is, what happens next? Wow. Holy cow. Sam, I just want to spend all day. Can we do like an eight-hour podcast with you? Um, will, you do, will you do part three, two, part three, and part four with me? Will you do, when quarantine is up, will you do this in the studio with me, the two of us, like with here? Let's think, do it. Let's um, do it. Okay, so you, things start to move. Uh, you're still in headlines. It's growing, it's growing, it's growing. Tell me about a pinch me moment um, that you're like, I used to watch you, you know, as a band, right? I used to watch you. I was inspired by you. And holy poop, I'm standing right next to you and about to go on the same stage that you're going at. Where's a pinch me moment? Yeah, I mean, we had a few of those. Uh, probably fast forward a couple years later um, when Dare You to Move had really taken off. That was the second single off of um, The Beautiful That Town. The first one was Meant to Live. Oh, yeah. And, um, and so that was a really busy time for us. Um, and it, it kind of culminates with us doing the lap around the country of all those Christmas shows that, um, you know, like uh, the jingle ball type shows that are a um, bunch of people playing in an arena. And, and so we ended up doing Madison Square Gardens um, two years in a row on those types of bills. And it's like, you know, it's, um, Destiny's Child, right? So you got Beyonce and all of them. Um, uh, just the most bizarre lineup, uh, Gwen Stefani and, you know, people that you just would have never even seen your music sharing the stage with. Um, I remember Donald Trump <laughs> introduced us back when he was the furthest thing from the president of our country. Crazy. Um, you know, so you're just kind of like, is this real life right now? You know, um, really bizarre situations. Um, but I think the one that stands out is like, this one actually meant something to me um, because he was a hero of mine, still is. It was when we opened for the Foo Fighters. And that was a, it was in Nashville. And I remember I'd gotten a chance to meet Dave Grohl a few years back um, at a random wedding. And he had, he was, uh, so Foo Fighters, I was a little late on Nirvana because I was younger than my brother. So my brother was deep into Nirvana. Foo Fighters for me was my senior year. That was like um, the first record. I wore that thing out. And then The Color and the Shape, still one of the greatest records of all time. And, and so when we got to open for them, that was, you know, it still is one of the, the high points um, that, that I'll never forget. Wow. So uh, tell me about when you won the Grammy. You won a Grammy. I joke with you all the time because I give you a hard time. I'm like, yo, Tim. Like, Tim, when, he, when I get to hang with him, Tim is just seriously super chill. He's just Tim. 
He's not trying to flex on anybody. He's not, you know, rolling in with the entourage. He's trying to be like barefoot, look coming in Huck Finn style. <laughs> but, like you and you, you give off that, that, that feeling. Right. And it's so, it, it's so refreshing. It's so refreshing to be able to see it, um, to be able to be around it. Um, take us through, I, and I joke and I'm like, yeah, and, but I do this, I don't want to embarrass you, but like I'll, I'll introduce Tim to people and I'll be like, yo, Tim, you got your Grammy with you, man? And <laughs> shut up, dude. Shut up. We ain't have, well, I believe that I haven't got a Grammy yet because uh, God knows where it on a necklace. You know what I'm saying? Like I'll wear it on a necklace swinging back and forth to, the, to, the, uh, to, the, to, the, to our pool and people be wondering what it is. Tell us about that feeling of getting a Grammy. It was surreal. I mean, just completely surreal, you know, because I think it was, um, well, I, first of all, I remember it very clearly. It was my first time being at the Grammys and, um, it wasn't my first time being at the Grammys. It was my second time. We had actually been nominated once before and lost. Um, it was my second time at the Grammys and, um, I'm sitting there with my wife, who's amazing. And um, it was such a special moment to, to share with her because, you know, I, I remember when I proposed to her and we were just a scrappy band with, uh, with no money, you know. I said, I, I can't promise you that, that we'll have money. I can't promise you that uh, we're going to have a nice house or anything like that. But I can promise you that I'll love you forever and that we'll have adventures to share, you know? And, and so to sit there next to her as they announced us as winning a Grammy, it just kind of felt like um, it was a real kind of special moment to share with her because we've had a lot of, I think, powerful adventures as a band, right? Those are my brothers. That's our, our brotherhood. And, and we share all these moments together, but to share that moment with my wife, um, because she's really my biggest partner in all of this, you know, um, and, and hasn't been there at a lot of those big moments that I've had professionally. So to, to, to share that was really cool. And what's funny about that night is, so my brother and I, his wife and my wife, we all carpooled up to the Grammys. No. And then we drove back late that night afterwards and we get to, um, we were living in Cardiff at the time. We get to around what is now our exit. And my brother sees, I'm driving. My brother sees the, uh, the fuel gauge. And he's like, man, you're really pushing it. I don't think, I, I think we're going to run out of gas. And we're literally like right next to a gas station, you know. And I'm like, no, man, we got this. Like, we can make it for sure. And Never mind the fact that it's also raining outside right now. And we pass the exit at the gas station till we get about a mile away from any gas station and the car stops. No gas. We, so we had just won a Grammy. We're driving home and we're out of gas on the side of the freeway. And, he, and my brother was so cool. He, he knew he didn't have to say anything. He just looks at me and I looked at him and then we both got out of the car started walking <laughs> to the nearest gas station in the rain and we didn't say anything but we were processing the irony of the high 
immediately followed by the low. And I think that's, you know, that, that has been our experience countless times. <laughs> Was the Grammy in the car? No, they don't let you keep it that night. So they, they, they take, immediately take it back. Okay. And then they, they put like um, your name and everything on it. And then they mail it to you. They deliver it. Yeah. They send it? Yeah. They don't have like a guy with a white glove and a suit show up to your house and be like, here's your Grammy, Mr. Foreman. No. And an interesting fact about the Grammy is that the, um, the, the phonograph, like the, you know, where the, the sound comes out of an old phonograph, that's the design. That thing actually unscrews. You have it. Fun fact. You have it in your house right now? Um, it's somewhere. It's somewhere upstairs. I might have to look for it. <laughs> you don't have it displayed? Like, you are the most humble dude in the world. Like, so you carpool to the Grammys. You break down. <laughs> you leave your wives in the car? They were asleep in the backseat by that. I mean, it's like 2 a.m. They were sleeping. John and I are driving. What car are you guys driving? Oh, gosh. I think that would be my brother's, no, it was my car. Yeah, it was a um, Honda Pilot. Honda Pilot. Are you serious? Like, you don't know where the Grammy is? I know it's upstairs. It's probably in the closet. Can you yell to one of your family members to try and get it? (laughs) They're all outside on the trampoline. Uh, So... Now, Tim, I honestly, I want to stay on here all day. I do have a, a thing that I, I'm channeling you today because I'm giving back to my high school. My high school asked me to come and do some distance learning on uh, building a brand and on business. So I'm speaking to them. So uh, I'm, I'm super excited about that. Um, okay. How many, what's the largest crowd that you've played to? A quarter of a million people in St. Louis for the uh, 4th of July, like 10, 15 years ago. Okay, Tim, I thought you were going to say 70,000, uh, <laughs> but you just stabbed me in my heart. <laughs> 50,000 people you played to? Yeah, it was wild. And we had no idea it was going to be that big. It's this big thing that Budweiser does. And um, at the end of the show, they had a firework display that some of the fireworks are lit off by jets. Like, it's just unbelievable. And they choreographed part of the show to dare you to move. It was just it was a very surreal moment. But the funny thing is we, we had had a, uh, like a tour photographer out with us on that run. And we sent him home that morning because we, we didn't know that it was like a big show and we couldn't afford to have him out for the whole tour. So we just had him out for a few shows and then sent him home. And so all we have is a little fr- a frame grab from a camcorder of our, our guitar tech running across the stage. <laughs> so when you go, tell us about the biggest, uh, bring us home with like one of the biggest blunders. I mean, I, obviously, I, I think most people are like, you dropped the mic when you did the Grammy story. The Grammy story is going to be legendary. Um, this is legendary. Um, what is like one of your biggest blunders in the big time? Like once you started making, because obviously we make uh, mistakes when we're on the road, whatever it is, we're grinding it out. But now you got some notoriety, you're on tour, you're doing big stadiums, whatever it is. Tell us about a big blunder uh, that you had or something that you were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just did that part. Well, you know, we've all, we've all done the, um, Hello, Cleveland, when it's not Cleveland. That always sucks. 
Hey, Tim, I did a wedding. Uh, I'm a wedding officiate, which is, please don't ask me to do your wedding. Uh, I just did one recently, but it was for a close friend. But someone asked me to do their wedding and dude, I said the wrong name to the woman. I was like, will you take Judy? And her name wasn't Judy. Um, <laughs> awful. Absolutely awful. So bring us home with this. Uh, you know, is you talked about your wife. I know your wife. I see you with your wife. I, I can see it like since too. I love this because Tim, for those of you who are listening, Tim from a distance is the same up close as he is from a distance, meaning that his character and who he is, humble, uh, family man, uh, amazing husband, that's who he is when no one's watching. And what role does your wife play in all of this? Because I see the way that you love your wife. I see the way that you look at your wife. Even the other night, me and my wife were walking our dogs. You and your wife were riding your bikes. I, we stopped. We started chatting and stuff. You looked over as if to let your wife know, I want to honor you in this time. I'm going to have this conversation, but you are the most important. And I knew that I could see it as a husband. I could see it. And you guys got on your bike. Now, a part of me was like, Tim, you ain't trying to be my boy, hang out for a while. But I knew like that look of like, hey, Kelly, it's, we're cool. We're going to talk later, but I'm spending time with my wife. How much of a role has she played in all this? My wife's amazing. Um, I think she has changed the way that I travel uh, in a huge way because she's so adventurous. And so I think in the early days of of tour, you know, before we were married and um, before she started traveling, she's been able to travel with me on on a lot of our, our more exciting places. When we go to Europe, she and the kids come, you know, that sort of thing. Um, But I, I think the early days of touring being just a, you know, a surf rat, I was only excited about bringing a skateboard and skating the curve out behind the venue. You know, I really took for granted what a gift traveling is. Um, I think I saw like probably a lot of 18 year olds would, you know? Um, and I think as you, as you grow and, and get older, I think you start to realize what a gift it is to see other cultures, um, to get to see the way other people live in different parts of the world. And, to go out and seek out those adventures. And the moment my wife started coming on tour with me, um, she'd be up at like 8 a.m. Granted, tour schedules are like, you're up till two, you wake up around 11 or 12, you know? Um, so suddenly I'm, she's waking me up at like eight or 9 a.m. And um, we're going and seeing things in cities that, I'd been to countless times and I'd never actually seen, you know, and that really awakened in me this um, more adventurous spirit that now is really a huge part of my identity and um, the the stoke that I get uh, when, I, when I travel is, you know, and now I wake up and I've got this whole list of things I want to see and every time I want to have a new adventure, you know, and that's something that, that she instilled in me just naturally from her personality of, that's who she is, you know, and um, she brings that that sunshine and sparkle into a, a place that I think could very easily have become mundane. And, um, you know, there's a lot of depressed touring musicians, right? So it can be a very dark, lonely, isolating place. And I think without her showing me that it could actually be a different sort of adventure and that it could be done differently, um, I don't know that I would enjoy uh, what I get to do nearly as much. 
Wow. Wow. I love the way that you love your kids too, man. I see the way that you are with your daughter. We got to do daddy daughter dance together, which was so awesome. Uh, you focused in you're with your kids. You're focused in uh, jet. Jet is no joke. Jet is the next, like that guy is, when I say rock star, I'm not talking about like, he's just a rock star. Cause he's himself. Like he's got his own style. He is amazing. Um, I'm going to ask you a question and then I want you to send us off with a message, you know, what you would like the listeners to hear from Tim. And, but before that, will you promise to come on a second? Will you promise to come on again? Let's do it. Let's do it. I did that publicly so I can hear. <laughs> um, do your kids think that you're like the people on Facebook right now are flipping their lids Oh my gosh, this is Tim from Switchport. Ah! Do your kids see you as that cool? <laughs> my kids are, are so used to music and tour life and just kind of the ridiculous, uh, I'd call it an unreality, you know, of the stage. It's such a bloated reality. Um, but the, the hype just goes right past them, you know, because they grew up in it. I, I started bringing my son out. He's my oldest. When he was four or five years old, I started bringing him on solo trips, just him and the guys out on the tour bus. And I would set up a bed next to me on stage like, where people couldn't see him, you know. Yeah. And he'd have his, own, his ear, like, protection phones on. And he wouldn't even make it through the first song and he'd be asleep. You know, the, the excitement of the crowd and being on stage, like, it just has no effect on my kids. That's, that's just kind of this weird reality that they've grown up in and um and i think you know like my my son used to go to school and he'd be like hey what does your dad play you know he just assumed that everyone played an instrument and that that was just kind of a normal thing um my dad plays the bass what does your dad play you know that's 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 what work was and so um yeah the, the hype is is uh they're not excited about the hype at all they're they're excited to come on tour but not because of the show and everything they're excited to to have adventures with me and and we've had some amazing adventures all over the world because of that you know it's kind of like that becomes the real purpose of uh of the trip for our family is the adventures we have during the daytime and then i'll i'll go and, and do work for a little bit at night and then starts over again the next day that's incredible, man. That's awesome. So what, what do you want to tell our listeners? Thank you for listening to Kelly Cardenas podcast. I'm going to let this finish it because he is a, I mean, your humble spirit, man, what you bring to the table is so amazing. You, you, you drop fire bombs on everybody and you're telling your story, but what we're hearing is like, you got to hustle, you got to work, you got to believe in it more. Um, if you believe in it, don't worry about what other people think about it and it'll work out at some point. You're, I mean, most now all of you out there, are going to get a Grammy. Um, but you know, it's crazy because the thing that is your, like one of your biggest hits was the thing that everyone was like, uh, other people were like, ah, but you believed it. And I think that that message is amazing. What do you want to say to the listeners before they subscribe and do all that stuff? Well, two things I've been thinking about during this quarantine season, um, where we're all, uh, you know, battling depression in different ways, or we're forced into a different situation that's scary. Um, we're all worried about our jobs, right? There's all sorts of like background anxiety and stress. Um, so I think it, it really brings into focus that a lot of the, um, those things that we're stressed about, those aren't the big 
the big uh, conceptual goals of our life, right? Those, those were the, the, um, the small cogs of the wheel that were initially pushing a bigger goal, but sometimes those small cogs become the big goal. And it's a chance to refocus and be like, okay, making money isn't the goal. You know, the goal is, and for me, it really comes into focus. What is the goal? The goal for me is to live, to deliver songs of hope to hurting people. That's always been the goal. And I think how we accomplish that goal is going to look very different during this season, but the goal doesn't change, you know, and it's probably a different goal for everyone, but I think it's a time to re-examine what is the big goal that you're living. And then once you decide that, then figure out how that looks and how that changes during the season. That's the first thing I've been thinking about. The other thing I've been thinking about is that in music, in any creative endeavor, the creative result is defined more by the limitations than by the possibilities. That's just always been the nature of it. For instance, the fact that we're even having this podcast call right now is because of this quarantine, right? We've known each other for, for years and we've never done this, but here we are in the confines of quarantine. Therefore we're having this creative expression of conversation that wouldn't have existed otherwise. So any, any endeavor is more defined by the confines than it is the possibilities because the possibilities are endless, but the confines are specific and very obvious. And they've never been more obvious than right now in this quarantine. And so like with an album, we, we, we talk about what, what the confines are, right? Um, is it going to be, okay, this album, we're only using guitars or we're only using this. Or, you know, that becomes a very important way that you craft an artistic endeavor. And growth only comes from new confines. Um, as a parent, right, we feel that. We feel... Uh, growth only comes through struggles and new challenges. Um, and it's hard to endure as a parent when you watch your kids struggle, but then you see the growth afterwards. And so I think we're all very aware of the confines right now, but I'm trying to also focus on what the confines are bringing me towards, you know, what new growth uh, will come out of this season of struggle and hardship. And um, I think it's easy to see that with, uh, within my family, you know, it's forcing me to focus more on them. I think it's focusing, fo forcing me to focus more on what my true goal is in life. And um, I don't know, I think it's an important reminder for all of us to, to remind each other that there will be um, good things that come out of this, this hard time and to hang in there. It is, it is hard. It is tough. Um, it's, it's definitely a, a season of highs and lows, um, but stay the course and we'll get through this. Well, I, I tell you, my, my daughter, uh, I wasn't even going to say anything. I was just going to, but the, I, I've told you this before, man, but last uh, daddy-daughter dance, and we just missed our daddy-daughter dance because of the COVID-19. Um, and, you know, obviously some, some of you guys don't have a home. And so when I'm saying I didn't go to, get to go to the daddy-daughter dance, I'm just telling you, it was just huge. But we listened to the new Switchfoot Native Tongue last year, our whole daddy-daughter dance. And one of the songs, All I Need, um, I mean, the whole, the whole album, it's my favorite album you've ever done. 
And I'm a fan. I've been a fan for 20 years. I'm talking native tongue is on that next level and everything. And all I need was like, all I need is the air I breathe. The, uh, what, what, uh, tell, help me with this. All I need is the air I breathe. The time we share and the ground beneath my feet. Ground beneath my feet. Um, it was amazing. But I tell you, there's an anthem. And I don't know if you could do this because I didn't ask you on it. There is a song that I believe is going to become the anthem of this time right now. And it's, we're going to be all right. Mm. Could you leave us with a little strum of it's going to be all right? Oh man, you're putting me on the spot. <laughs> well, if, if, if you can, what I'd do is I'd go to iTunes right away. I'd go to iTunes right away. It's going to be all right. This song I played it for uh, my team. I played it for distance learning. I'm actually going to play it for the high school that I'm about to speak to right now that, uh, that I'm going on the call with, but it's going to be all right. This song is going to be, I believe it's going to bring our country together. I believe that it'll help you to understand and know. And when you sit, close your eyes, listen to the lyrics, Tim, you are a genius. Um, more than you're a genius and a musical uh, like icon, phenomenal human being, phenomenal, phenomenal human being. And I appreciate you being on the podcast, the Kelly Cardenas podcast. Please click like, click the subscribe, all the stuff. But we're going to continue to have people who do great things, right? That who are actually phenomenal people who happened to do great things. This is a phenomenal person who happened to win a Grammy and then broke down on the way home. <laughs> so thank you, Tim. You're amazing, man. Oh, man. You're too kind, Kelly. So good to talk to you and to see your face, even though we're only a few blocks apart. It's, uh, it's good to see you, man. I love you, man. You're off the hot seat. I'll talk to you soon, brother. All right, man. Peace.